I'm excited today. We're going to kind of kick off talking a little bit about Lent. And we started with Ash Wednesday this week. We had a bunch of folks in the room praying. There's prayer stations kind of set out all around the room. I love our church's commitment to prayer. Uh, I love our commitment to just making certain that we're actually at the feet of Jesus, like Grant just said, that we're making sure that we're, 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 we're present with him and, and, and trusting that it's, it's in God, God's presence that everything gets sorted out and that that's the place where we figure out what's next and where we take our cares and needs and, and hurts. It's where we take our thoughts and our desires and all of those different things. And I don't know what your experience has been with Lent. Uh, growing up. Uh, Some of you, it's probably something like you've never heard of. You just didn't experience it in your church background. Some of you uh, come from a background where Lent was the season where you gave something up uh, for a season. And and so for me, growing up, it was always I had to choose what I was giving up. And during that season, I had to figure out what's that thing that I'm going to give up. And it always turned into like a do better kind of thing for me. It was always a, I got to try harder. I got to do better. I got to give more to God. I got to all of these different things. And, and, and as I've grown and as I've, I've gotten older, I, I've realized that Lent is, is, is just this season of preparation. It's a season of surrender. And it's an opportunity for me to just simply evaluate where in my life am I believing something that is not true? Where in my life am I believing the bad news or the lie versus the good news that the Father gives me? And where in my life am I not in, a, in alignment with the Father? I think all of our spiritual life comes down to this. I want to learn to walk with Jesus every day. I want to be aligned with who Jesus is. I want my life to look like his. I want to have his heart for the world. I, I want to see people the way that Jesus sees them and not the way that I see them. I, I want to view the world the way that Christ views the world. And, and in order for me to do that, I have to be aligned with him, and which means I have to learn to walk by faith. I need to learn to walk in the spirit. I need to learn to trust in the work that he's doing. And I need to learn to, to agree with him about what reality says the world is. And so part of my Lenten journey for myself is is this journey of learning to agree with God about what reality actually is. Theologian Bernard Lonergan says this. He says, a new way of seeing the world involves what he calls a a horizon change or a paradigm shift. In that revolutionary moment, we are literally seized by a way a vision, and we begin to experience our life as meaningful through serving through a new construct. Everything, including our mental maps and our core commitments, are reordered as a result. Metanoia, which that's the Greek word for repentance, therefore involves a capacity to imagine new possibilities. The idea of an open and invigorating imagination. It's much more than a confession of personal guilt or doing penance. It's learning to align your life with the work of God. I love that image of that it actually reorders our mind, that, that, that our, our, our mind maps can be reordered. Scripture talks about taking captive your thoughts, right? This is what it's talking about. It's this idea that I want to agree with God about reality. I want to align with him. And, and, and the reality is our hearts respond to what we believe. When, when you know something up here, 
something happens, but sometimes there's this big gap between our head and our hearts, right? Our, our hearts believe it, but our head can't get there. Or we want to live a certain way, or we want to walk a certain way, but we can't sort out that distance between our head and our heart. And so we, we, we live as if the truth of the gospel isn't true. We live as if there is bad news or a lie that is controlling the things that we do. And so we may say that we trust that God is our provider, but the truth is when, when, when moments come, when, when we're lacking or when scarcity exists, we have these incredible freak-out moments. Or we may say that I am a beloved son of the Most High God, but every time we fail, we walk into this shame cycle that allows us to say, what I actually think I believe, I don't know that I really believe. Or, or, or we may say that my, my, my significance is found in the Father, and so I don't have what we call the bad news. It's the lies that we believe that pivot our feet out of alignment with the Father and into something else. And the bad news directly contradicts what Jesus has taught us through his life, what he's spoken through his word, and it's planted in our hearts. Just like the good news is planted in our hearts, the bad news is planted in our hearts. And sometimes it's planted by something that somebody said to you as a child. Sometimes it's planted through childhood wounds. Sometimes it's through uh, the wounds you receive from your parents or, or, or something that a coach said to you or a moment in time that happened to you. There are moments in all of our lives that mark us, Right? There's moments that mark us, and those moments mark us either for good or bad. And they, all of us have been marked by bad news. We've been marked by a lie. We've been marked by something that, that, that stands out to us. So when I was a kid, when I was, when I was your guys' age, when I was a high schooler, I cared about two things. I cared about playing basketball and kissing girls. Those were the only two things I cared about in the entire world. That was it. That was the only things that mattered to me. And, and here's what I realized is that when I scored 25 points on a Friday night, I would kiss more girls. <laughs> right? I, I, I learned that like the more that I scored on, in basketball, the more people liked me. I realized that like when I started to get good at basketball, my grandparents started showing up to all the games. My cousins started showing up to all the games. Like, my cousins would be like, that's my cousin. That's my, they would, like, shout. Like, the, everybody started showing up to my games, and, and I learned that you, the, the way that I could win was by achieving. Does that make sense? The only problem is, like, Scripture teaches us that it's by grace we're saved, not by our works, so that we could boast. That I don't have to earn my salvation. That I have nothing to prove to the Father. In fact, Romans teaches us that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And so for me, as I, as I live into this paradigm, what happened is I got older, right? And as I got older, I became a pastor. And you know what's a bad pattern for a pastor? Is to try and prove yourself week after week after week in the pulpit. And try and get better week after week after week. And so I just took all of my mentality at basketball. And this was my mentality with basketball. Was I'm not the best player, but nobody's going to outwork me. That was my mentality at basketball. So I just took that into preaching. And I was like, this is now my Friday night. This is my basketball game. This is, I, the, the kissing girls thing was gone at that point. Because uh, I was married. So there was just one girl. But I still wanted to kiss her. But there was just one, right? But... But I, I just put, took all of my stuff into to preaching, and, and, 
And I had this, like, I have to prove myself every single Sunday morning. I have to prove myself. Every single Sunday morning, I have to prove that I'm worthy to stand in this place. Every single Sunday morning, I have to be smart, and I have to be insightful, and I have to say something that nobody else has ever said about this text before, which is ridiculous to even think that, right? I have to to do all of these different things. And so I took all of this bad news in my life, which is I have to earn love and affection. And I stopped applying it to basketball and started applying it to ministry. And I tried to earn everybody's approval and everybody's love week after week. Because there was this bad news inside of me. There was this lie inside of me that said, you are unworthy of love unless you achieve and perform. When we train leaders, we call that your sacred wound. It's the wound that you carry with you every time you lead. It's the wound that you walk with your entire life. It's what you've been named. It's the lie that's been declared over you. It's the thing that's been said to you. And I would suggest that all of us have it in some way or another. There is some moment in your past where you were marked by a lie. And your mind is battling that lie over and over and over again. And so as we move into Lent, what we move into is a season where we actually say, wait a minute. Resurrection is coming. And as resurrection is coming, I want to make sure that I'm aligned. I want to make sure that I've taken captive my thoughts. I want to make sure that I'm declaring the good news over myself and over those I come in contact with. And I'm not living into the lies. Uh, And and so the bad news we believe are, are, are our idols. And idolatry is seeking security and meaning in something other than God. Anywhere where we, we try and get our uh, security and belonging other than God. And so there's three main ways that this plays out in our lives. Three main lies that are planted in us. And three truths that, that, that we want to step into. And they are this. It's security, significance, and belonging. And I want to track this through both two different things. I want to look at Genesis. And I want to look at the story of God in creation And then I want to jump to Jesus' temptation in the wilderness and talk about how we see these three things combating our lives in both of those places. So let's, let's start at the garden. So in the garden, God gave Adam and Eve the garden. He gave them responsibility. He gave them authority. He gave them the opportunity and the option to, to operate in a responsible way, to follow him, to walk with him, to walk in the cool of the day. They were known uh, their, their only restriction was one. It was the tree of knowledge. Just for all of us as we're kids, we're operating in this space of like, things are good. Life is good. And then there enters a lie somewhere in our lives. Uh, child psychologists will talk about that lie that disconnects us from reality and disconnects us from safety and security and disconnects us from good and wholeness and healthiness. And that lie just begins to fester and grow. Genesis chapter 3, 1, the serpent begins speaking to Eve and begins questioning God's motives. And this is how the lies enter in. They're, they're subtle, right? They're, they're, they're little. And, and, and here, here's what he says. Did God actually say that? Did he actually say you can't eat from the tree of the garden? Right? That, that, that's, that's, how, that's how these things get in. They're just subtle, kind of questioning God. Uh, have you ever felt like God is holding out on you? 
Have you ever felt like everybody else is getting blessed, but not you? Have you ever felt like everybody else is receiving something good, but not you? That, that maybe God is holding out on something from you. Maybe there's something better out there for you, and if you just did something different, you would receive it or experience it. Did God really say that? We will die if we eat from the fruit of the, of the one tree. And, you, and, and the serpent says, you won't die. Your eyes will be opened, and then you'll be like God. Something new will happen. And there's three ways that the serpent comes in and attacks with this lie. The first is he says that the fruit was good for food, right? The fruit is good for food. The second is that it's pleasing to the eye. And the third is it's desirable for gaining wisdom, which would make her like God. And these lies left her questioning the father, right? Can I trust him? Can I trust the father to give me security, Can I trust the Father to give me significance? Can I trust the Father to give me belonging? Those are the three core things that are at stake here. Or am I going to trust myself to go get those things? Am I on my own to pursue those things? And so the bad news for us are the lies that sabotage our trust in God. They're the subtle little things that sneak in. And so the the lie for security Security is the need for safety and security. It's the fear of not having enough, right? It's that I'd stop trusting that God is my provider. And the lie that I believe is that I am what I have. I am what I own. I am what I possess. I am what I do. I am uh, uh, the things that I'm able to step into. Second is belonging. And belonging is the need for approval and affection, It's the fear of not being enough. And the core lie is, I am what others think I am. I am what others believe that I am. And so my view of the world is not shaped based on how does God see me, what does he see in me. It's shaped by what do others see in me, which fluctuates from person to person, right? Third is significance, which is the need for power and control. And the fear of significance is the fear of not doing enough. And so the core lie is I am what I do. I am the things that I live into. I'm the things that I work. I I am my achievements. I am my accomplishments. The sum of who I am is all built around what I do and what I accomplish and what I create and what I make and what I do during the week. And this bad news is hidden. It's subtle. It's below the surface because the truth is we were created for security, significance, and belonging, but we were created to find those things in the Father who is good and who is with us, and we try and seek them out in other ways. Everything that Adam and Eve needed in the garden was right in front of them because the father walked with them in the cool of the day and the cool of the evening. But they tried to go find it somewhere else. They thought that there was just one other thing that I needed. If I just have this, what's that thing that you tell yourself? If I just had this, that promotion, if I just had this, this amount of money in the bank, if I just had this, a weekend where my kids weren't in the house. If I just had this, whatever that thing is that you're saying to yourself is going to give you security, significance, and belonging. What's the lie that you tell yourself? If I just had this, I'd be secure. If I just had this, I would belong. 
If I just had this, I would be significant. This is where the subtle lies enter in, and we're tricked into believing that there's something out there beyond our relationship with the Father that will actually give us true satisfaction and true joy. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness. And it's interesting because I've heard this preached so many different times, but the temptation for Jesus is this, because this is how subtle the lies enter in. The temptation for Jesus is to do the right thing in the wrong way. Anybody who's ever worked at a church understands that temptation. There is always this temptation to do the right thing in the wrong way. There is always this subtle way of, I could operate this way, and I know that we would get the right thing done, and in the end, we would accomplish the thing that I think is going to help the church, but I've got to take a little shortcut, and I've got to hurt some people in order to do that. It's the end justifies the means. It's the project is more important than the people. It's competency and accomplishment is more significant than character. I I believe we have a crisis of character in the American church right now. A crisis of character. And I believe the reason it exists is because the people in the pews allow it to exist. Our pastors should be holy men and women who pray, who seek God, who follow him, who try and love well, and who are filled with character. And we've decided that what we would rather have is big crowds. What we would rather have is more dollars. What we would rather have is more accomplishments. And so we compromise. And we pursue competency at the stake of character. And can I suggest to you that the church needs to fall in love again with holiness. The church needs to fall in love again with character. The church needs to actually stand up and say, no more. No more of this. No more pastors who have a fall and are back in the pulpit in two months and have a larger crowd than they did before their fall. No more worship leaders who send pictures of their genitals on Instagram and sell more albums because of it. How is that happening? How is that stuff happening? How are we still listening to that stuff? Like there has to be a moment where we stand up and say, I think character still matters. I don't think the goal is for the church to have power. I think the goal is for the church to be the people of God. We've embraced it in our politics. We've embraced it in our pulpit. We've embraced it in our churches. We've embraced it in uh, uh, the things that we buy and the things that we purchase. I think the church loves power more than it loves Jesus. And think about how Jesus sought power by laying it all down, by dying, by giving it all up. And by saying, I'm laying everything down. All the power of heaven and earth exists in me. Jesus could have cried out on the cross at any moment and called down the angel armies. And he laid down his power and he laid down his authority and he became humble, taking on the nature of a man. 
The temptation is to do the right thing in the wrong ways. And so the devil, right before Jesus is about to step into his ministry, tempts him. He tempts him in the three ways that he tempted Eve. He didn't show up in a red suit with a pitchfork. He didn't ask him to do terrible, terrible things. He asked him to take shortcuts. And I want you to think about your heart. I I want you to think about the subtle shortcuts that you're invited to take. I want you to take, think about the moments in your mind where you think the ends justify the means. I want you to think about the ways in which you think, well, competency does matter more than character. And I want you to walk through these three lies. And I want you to just ask the Father today, where am I misaligned with you? Where are we out of step? Where am I believing something that is not true about God, about others, or about myself? Those are the three core lies that we believe. They're lies about who God is and what he's doing. They're lies about who we are and what we're doing. And they're lies about others and what they're perceiving. So let's start with the bad news of security. Security is the belief that I am what I had, what I have, right? So Jesus has been fasting for 40 days in the wilderness. If you fast for 40 days, what is the result of that? You're hungry. Good. You guys are with me. So the devil comes with him and says, if you're the son of God, then tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus is tempted to use his power to leverage his power to fill his stomach. He's hungry and he needs to satisfy his hunger. Now, let me say this. Security is legit. We all have needs, right? Are you with me? Needs are not the problem. It's how we meet those needs that's the question. Because sometimes what we do is we step out of alignment with God in order to meet our needs. There's a contract at work that we can get, but we know the only way we can get it is through shady practices. But we really need that contract and we really need those dollars. And so we step out of alignment with God in order to get security. Jesus can't turn the rocks into bread because he's fearful that God won't do it. The reason he can't do it is not because he's not able to do it. He says this, it is written, man will not live on bread alone. Security is all about trust. And when we struggle with security, we trust in something other than God to provide us with what we need. So we step out of alignment with him to get what we need. What is that thing that you believe that you need that God isn't giving you right now? And what are the shortcuts you're willing to take to get there? The core sin of security is the sin of fear. I'm afraid. I'm afraid that I'm not getting what I want. The message that that is told in your head is I will be happy as soon as I'm safe and secure. Once I have this, I'll be safe and secure. Once I've arrived here, everything will be all right. The lie is I have something to lose. Or the lie is this, that God is not a God of abundance, but God is a God of scarcity. There's not enough. There's not enough. Think about our whole economic system is built on the idea that there's not enough when actually there is enough. There's enough for all of us. There's enough resources for everyone. The problem is the top whatever percentage owns a huge portion of all the resources in the world. The false identity is I am what I have. So think about your life right now. 
Where is the bad news of security causing you to believe the lie? Where are you stepping out of alignment with the Father and not trusting that God is a God of abundance? Next is the bad news of belonging. The devil takes Jesus to the highest point of the temple and says, since you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, I will command my angels concerning you, and they will take you up in your hands so that, so that your head, so that you won't hit your foot to a stone. The highest point of the temple would have been the most visible point in, in the entire city, in all of Jerusalem. And so the idea here was this little charade would get attention. This is how you prove you're the son of God. You stand up at the highest point of the temple, you jump down, and everybody's going to say, whoa, this guy, this is the Savior, this is the one, this is the Messiah. People would immediately know it, and the affection and the esteem of everyone would flow his way. And here's what Jesus said, do not test the Lord your God. Jesus knows not to trust what people think of him. In fact, throughout Jesus' life, there are people that want to make him king one day and want to murder him the next day. Jesus learns that the, that the opinion of the crowds is not that significant and that the opinion of the crowds can change from day to day. The temptation of belonging is, is, is when we get our personal sense of value and worth from others. It's needing people to affirm, to accept, to acknowledge, to see what we're doing. And listen, none of this is wrong. We were all made to belong. You were created to belong. It's not wrong to give or receive affirmation, but it's wrong to chase after this in someone other than the Father. You are fully loved and accepted, and you fully belong to your Father in heaven. And when we start placing other people's opinions of us higher than, our, than God's opinions of us, we start to lose track, and we start to misalign, and we start to step out into things that God has said, I don't want you to step into this. Jesus shows us that our sense of affection and value can be rooted and grounded in God's love. So the core sin of belonging is shame. It's not fear, it's shame. We're, we're not just afraid, we're ashamed. And, 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 ashamed, and shame is, is we're afraid of who we are. Uh, uh, this is where imposter syndrome rises up. We're afraid that somebody will see us and see who we really are. And if they see who we really are, they won't love us. If they know who we really are, they won't stay. The message is, I will be happy when people like me, when people appreciate me, and when people accept me. The question that you ask is, am I enough? The lie is, I have something to hide. And the false identity is, I am only as great as others think I am. Here's the challenge. Jesus loved the crowd says over and over again, he had compassion on the crowd. He loved them and he cared for them. But he wasn't willing to build his life on what the crowd said he should do. He constantly returned to one place. He got quiet with his father in heaven and said, Lord, what do you want? I would suggest he heard the whisper as we've talked about the last few weeks. He just got along with God and said, I need you to remind me this is part of what church is, guys. All of us, this is our belief, that all of you are on mission by God. 
There is a good work that has been prepared for you in advance. You are all living that out throughout the week. You're walking in the works that he's called you to. And so we need to gather together here at church to be reminded of who we are before we go out and try and achieve something and accomplish something. I need to be reminded of the faithfulness. That's why we sing these songs, guys. We don't sing these songs because we love music. We don't sing these songs because Angie's a really good artist, which I think she is. Right? We, we, we sing these songs because I need to be reminded of the truth that we're declaring. Somebody the other day was like, why do we always repeat the song so much? And I said, because repetition is the key to understanding. It's how we teach children things. We repeat it over and over and over again, and then suddenly we start to believe it. I would suggest that wor- our worship songs are the most scripture that a lot of people get throughout the week. Because we're not in our Bible, but we're in, the, we're in the songs. And the songs are saying the same words. They're proclaiming the same truths. Some of the songs that we sing, you know, they're, just, they're just right out of Scripture. This is, this is a whole Scripture that we're singing, and people don't even know it. They're like, I like that song from so-and-so. <laughs> so where are you tempted to believe the lie of belonging? that you don't belong? Were you tempted to take shortcuts in your life around belonging? The next is the bad news of significance. The devil took him to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, I'll give you all of this if you bow down and worship me. Which is interesting because Jesus already owned all of it. Are you with me? Jesus must have thought, I can do this. I can be ruler over everyone. This will give me a shortcut to get there. I don't know if Jesus knew the cross was coming at this point. But this is a shortcut to avoid the cross. Right? This is a shortcut for me to avoid the pain of that death. This is a shortcut to get me all of those things that I, that I want. And with Satan's offer to rule the nations, maybe it skips out on that. And Jesus says, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The core sin of significance is guilt. It's not shame, but it's guilt because our worth is always measured in our accomplishments. We are what we accomplish. We are what we achieve. And the message is, I will be happy as soon as I've achieved enough things to be significant. As soon as I've accomplished enough. So for me, much of my life in ministry, it was as soon as the church is this big. As soon as I have this many followers on whatever social media thing that I have. There's a lot of people right now that think building a platform is more important than building their pulpit. And it's nonsense. The core question is, have I done enough? There's this guilt that I always feel like I haven't done enough. I haven't achieved enough. I always have to do more. There's always this pressure on me or whoever believes in this to do more, to accomplish more, to, to be better. I can remember as a young pastor, uh, I, I could not rest. I, I, this is what I learned playing basketball. I learned this principle that if I wasn't practicing, somebody else was. Did you, anybody else hear that as far as sports? If you're not working hard, somebody else is out there working hard. And I was like, nobody's going to outwork me. I'm going to work all the time. And so I played ball just constantly. That's all I did. So I became a pastor. And, and then I would like try and rest. And I would be like, there's some other pastor out there reading a theology book right now. 
I got to read systematic theology. It was not nearly as fun as basketball. Like it's just this, it's just this terrible pattern of I'm always believing that I've got to be achieving, right? I've always got to be doing something. I always am afraid that I didn't do enough. I'm always worried that I didn't accomplish something. The, the parable of the talents was never good news for me. Because everybody told me when I was a kid, like, you are so talented. You're so gifted. And don't you dare screw that up. And I was always like, ah, God's disappointed in me because I'm not doing enough with my talents. God's upset with me that my church isn't as big as my buddy from Bible college. God's worried about me because I, I, there's all of these things rolling through my head. The false identity is I am what I do. So where does significance attack you? Where does the lie of significance enter into your life? Security, belonging, and significance, these are the core lies that we plan ourselves in. And, and, and here's the good news, and here's the goal. The goal for us is not to fight it or to fix it or to try harder, but the goal is to face it and to feel it, and to grow into it. The goal is to take the hand of God and say, I, man, I see the pattern in my life of constantly not believing that you're going to provide. I see the pattern in my life of me constantly feeling like I don't belong. I see the pattern in my life of me feeling like I have to achieve more and accomplish more. And God, will you teach me to follow you? You teach me to align with you. Will you teach me to walk with you? Will you teach me what you think about me and what you say about me? And will you teach me all of these things? Because here's the good news, whether it's security, significance, or belonging. Here's the truth, and this is, the, this is one of the best theological statements you will ever receive right here. We were given all of this at creation. It was disconnected from all of us at the fall. It was promised to us through Israel. And it was all restored again through Jesus Christ. We were given all that we needed at creation. It was disconnected from us at the fall. It was promised in Israel. And it was restored again through Christ. So here's the good news. You guys, let's get to the good news. We've talked a lot about bad news. Security. The good news of Jesus is that you are abundantly taken care of in Christ. The truth is, he owns a cattle, the cattle on a thousand hills. The truth is, he is a father who is a good father who wants to give you good gifts. The truth is that he is an abundant provider, and you can trust him with what you provide, what he provides, and what you need. And whether you are in lacking or full, you can trust that he is good, that he is with you, that he sees you, that he knows you, that he's taking care of you. That is the good news of, of security. Good news of belonging is this. What we see in the life of Jesus is that by planting our lives in a place of belonging with the Father, we can pivot and we can live unashamed. We are chosen by him. We are beloved by him. We are sons and daughters. We are valued. We are cared for. We are not motivated and driven by others' opinions of us because the opinion of the one that matters most, the one that created us, the one that made us, the one who knows us more than all, says, you are my beloved son or daughter. The good news of significance is this. The guilt over accomplishing things leads us to do more or to go harder. 
the good news revealed in Jesus is that we're already significant just because we're in Christ, just because we are his sons and daughters, that we don't have to prove or earn or accomplish or achieve. The lie we believed in the garden is that he won't share his power with us. Jesus says, all authority and power I give to you, my children. I give you the keys to the kingdom. All I have is yours. Which means we don't have to be significant. We don't have to accomplish anything. We had a prayer time before the service, and uh, we were praying through these things. and We were looking at the prayer stations around the room, which we're all going to do in just a minute. And... uh, One of the questions on my little sheet that I had here said, um, it said, take a minute and just ask God how he sees you. Ask him this question, who do you say I am? And I just spent a minute and was praying. Wasn't hearing anything, wasn't hearing nothing. And then I just heard just a little, little whisper. You are mine. That was it. You're mine. I, I, I've lived my whole life battling belonging, feeling like I'm not worthy, feeling like I'm not enough, feeling like everything I do is insufficient, feeling like no matter how hard I try, I can't get the thing that I want to grab. And the way that I achieved belonging was through significance. So what I would do is every time I felt like I didn't belong or I felt unworthy, I would prove I was better by accomplishment. I wanted to be the smartest person in the room. I I wanted to perform at a level that made people say, you're significant. My biggest fear is failure. My biggest fear is being seen as incompetent. My biggest fear is being seen as someone who doesn't have anything to offer because that's in my core what I was told when I was a child and what I believed about myself. And so I have this sacred wound that every time I step up to preach, every time I step up to lead, there's this thing that's going on in my head that's saying, why are you doing this? How can you be the one to teach at the church? How can you be the one that makes this decision? How can you be the one that leads this meeting? There's this imposter syndrome that just fills me up over and over and over again. And when I started doing research on this and I started looking at the lies that we believe and I started studying security, significance, and belonging, I started looking at how it played out in my life. What I did was I I came up with a statement that I repeat to myself over and over and over again. I will, I have for the last seven years, every single sermon I have preached, as I stand up from that chair right there, I have said it as I walk to here in my head. And it is this, you are a beloved son of the most high God and you have nothing to prove or nothing to earn today. You are mine and that's all that matters. And so here's what I want to encourage you to do. I I want you to encourage you to think about the lie that you're believing. Is it a lie of security? Is it a lie of significance? Is it a lie of belonging? What is that thing? And, and, And we're going to go into a prayer time and We're going to take communion, and I I just want to encourage everybody to just find, go to one of the prayer stations around the room. 
And maybe read the headlines, right? You don't have to read all, but read the head. I give it all to Jesus. Maybe that's the one you need. I belong to Jesus and he knows me. Maybe that's the one you need. I remember Jesus. I am created in his image and he will defend me. I can't read the ones in the back because my eyes are bad. Uh, But whatever those are, look at those and just say, all right, Lord, which one are you drawing me to? And go to that one. And then I want you to think about, Lord, what is the truth that you want to proclaim over my life today? What's the truth that you want to tell me? What's the alignment that you want me to walk into? Because what what the Father has done in me in my time in ministry over the last 29 years is he's taught me that I really am his beloved. That whether I preach the best sermon that's ever been preached in the history of Christendom, which I haven't, I've probably gotten closer to the worst, or I preach the worst, that his value on me doesn't change. That he sees me the same way my daughter preached for a youth event recently. Claire got up here and she preached and she shared and she put together a sermon and worked on it all on her own. I didn't help her at all. She's like, Dad, I don't want your help. And I sat back in the back, right where Sarah's sitting right now. I sat back in the back and I listened to her preach and I was so proud. She could have said anything. <laughs> right? It did not matter what she said. She's also way more dynamic than I am, right? Uh, but I, as I, I was just so proud, and, and the Father's just teaching me, like, I, I just, I see you that way. I just love that you're trying to do it right. I just love that you're walking with me. I just love that you're here. What is the good news that the Father wants to proclaim to you? What's the gospel truth? And, and, and could you create a little statement this week that you just repeat over and over again when you start to believe the lie? When you start to believe the lie that you have to achieve more? When you start to believe the lie that there's not enough, when you start to believe the lie that you're not worthy, what is it that Jesus wants to say to you? Could you write that down and claim it for yourself this week? So the band is going to come, and we're going to just kind of give this time to the Holy Spirit and ask him to do the work that I can't do as a pastor, and that is speak to your hearts and encourage you and give you some good news. And so as the band comes, there's communion stations set up. If you want to take your communion and go to one of the stations, you can do that. If you want to take communion and just sit down and reflect on what this thing is, if you feel like God's drawing you to one of the stations, go to those stations, read the little thing there, make room for everybody else, and just participate in what that station is saying. And let's just take a few minutes here, and let's just allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us. And that may seem weird to some of you. I just want to acknowledge, like, if, if you feel like, man, I've never, I don't, I don't hear from God, I don't, I don't know what that feels like, I don't know what that sounds like, could I just invite you to try today? Just to ask God a question and sit in silence, see what comes into your head. See how he speaks or how he moves. Pay attention to what he's saying or what he's doing around you. And so, Heavenly Father, we just give this time to you. We acknowledge that every single one of us has fallen for a lie. That we've all eaten the apple from the tree that we shouldn't have eaten from. That we've all believed that something else is going to give us the satisfaction that only you can. That we've all stepped out, sinned, and fallen short of your glory. We ask you today to remind us of the good news. Remind us that we belong to you. Remind us what you've called us to. Remind us what you see when you look at us. And we repent, Lord. 
We agree with you about reality. We agree with what you say about us versus what the world says about us. We agree with the way that you've invited us to live versus the way the world's invited us to live. We trust that you're moving and working and that you're good. And so Holy Spirit, right now I ask, with compassion and kindness, would you fill this room with your grace, with your compassion, with your kindness? Would you speak to wounds that we've carried for years? Would you remind us that we are your beloved sons and daughters?